Ooh, y'all, thank you for being here. My voice right now, as I'm recording the intro for this podcast episode, is gone. The Like two or three days ago, I went to an event where uh, the DJ was playing Missy Elliott and a bunch of songs from like the 90s and the 2000s. I felt like I was in middle school again. I was singing the words that every song in my same old two-step like I usually do. <laughs> but um, I don't sound like this for the podcast recording at all, so we'll be fine there. But I do want to apologize in advance just for the audio quality. I bought some new microphones and I had them with me, but uh, our guest pointed out when we were going through the recording in the beginning that only one was picking up audio. And I'm glad that I was able to find that out then because you wouldn't have been able to hear anything at all. So we had to go old school for this one. Like right now you hear me talking into a microphone and I'm making this a habit to where I'm using my microphone more uh, so that I can get <clears throat> practice with it and sound better. And then um, there's a dog in the background and our guest Lauren's partner was there as well in the background. Uh, he didn't talk or anything, but he was just in the room and doing stuff that you'll be able to hear throughout the podcast episode so i just wanted to jump in here and say that and then give you a little bit of an update not too much um i want to make sure that you can get the podcast episode in but um the um ah, wow i'm just completely blanked out uh (coughs) i want to let you all know that um I am, yeah, recording podcasts a little bit different uh, than what you might be used to. I'm going to work to get more solo episodes in. Um, It's something that I will go into much more detail in in its own episode. Um, But something that I've been working on for myself is a line for myself to uh, be more transparent. I know y'all feel like I have in the past, but I reality is I haven't. Like I'm very good about being objective with everything and um, positioning things in a way that people can't argue with me or really disagree, <clears throat> even if our opinions are different. And so uh, the next week's podcast episode that you'll hear is going to feature our guest, Anthony Tony uh, from I Am Controversy. And this is an Instagram page. Uh, We talk about black male leadership and that expands into a lot of different things that are really controversial stuff that people get canceled for. (laughs) Um, But really just speaking reality, speaking to statistics and a lot of that does make people sensitive or hurt their feelings, but uh, we go there. And it's something that's important to me that I'm able to demonstrate between people like how to and that it's possible to have these conversations with one another. So um, without holding you up anymore, I'll go ahead and let you get into this podcast episode. And uh, yeah, you'll hear from me um personally like in real time because I know these last several episodes are for the Oregon Health Authority and those were structured in a certain way to collect information and put that information out there so that people um, who were approving the grant were able to find the information see it and all that but yeah we're back to our regularly scheduled programming now interviews with people with SCIs and then uh, anything that I deem relevant to what it is that we got going on here something positive for positive people so check it out um 
if you are someone who is in need of like additional support beyond what you're getting if you want to talk through how to disclose if you want to talk through opening your relationship or getting back in the dating world or even um, going through the process of planning a family with someone like there's a lot of different areas under the umbrella of herpes support but it's really 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 about self-development and this is something that comes up in this podcast episode and several others um but yeah i'm here i'm here to support you uh something positive for positive people offers donation-based self-help self-development resources um to essentially dissolve internalized stigma just by making it irrelevant because you've done so much um of your own self-discovery self-work i call the whole process in itself like getting selfed um or becoming selfed and uh yeah once we get to a certain point there stigma just becomes irrelevant so i hope that lauren's experience lauren's story is about is able to help you um trigger warning early on uh we speak a little bit about uh, addiction abuse uh and a little bit of religion all right here you go welcome to something positive for positive people i'm courtney brain something positive for positive people is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides donation-based mental health support resources for people navigating herpes stigma wow i said that clean I probably need to cut that and put it in the intro of every podcast episode because that is probably the most clear and concise I have ever been with explaining what something positive for positive people is. And maybe that's just the calm atmosphere that has been created here today by my guest, Lauren. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Again. Yeah, but that voice Again. on. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the first time we tried to do this recording, we did it. We completed it. It was great. I either didn't upload it or I deleted it by mistake and I was very frustrated with myself because it had been a long time in between recordings I was like oh I'll upload that episode with Lauren and guess what it disappeared so we have a (laughs) sort of similar situation here today uh, because I haven't recorded a podcast since summer Um, I finished out the Oregon Health Authority episode so this will be the first of an interview podcast episode for something positive and oh it's november it's been about four months so your first interview that i've had for this podcast over the course of four months um i've been practicing i've been interviewing my family members for some personal stuff like grandparents my dad so far and then my uh step grandmother um as well so hopefully i'm not too rusty so uh, we'll see. We'll see how good of a host I can be this time. And I hope that um, you know, I can guide this conversation appropriately. So um, I guess I'll just begin with, you know, what's your diagnosis and what was going on around that time? Yeah. Um, so I was about 20 um, and I met just this really hot bartender that literally I just thought really hot bartender just wanted to sleep with him thought it'd be like one night stand type thing and then I ended up uh, <laughs> a few days later I was like what what is this and um 
I was having an outbreak. He thought I knew because um, he thought I had seen the pills in his bathroom. And so he didn't tell me because I guess he thought that I had like rummaged through his bathroom and figured it out that way. And so he I mean, didn't tell well, me. women are detectives, right? So you should have just known, right? <laughs> I'm, I can honestly say <laughs> I have many exes to prove this. Like I, I just don't rummage through anything. So I was not the one. Um, but yeah, I did not, <laughs> I, I didn't see that. I didn't know. And, uh, so I found out the, the fun way when I got an outbreak, like probably two days afterwards. Now, granted, on me, obviously we, well, not obviously, but we did not use protection. So the fault is also, you know, on me as well for not using protection. Now, but, you know that even if you would have worn a condom that you still could have contracted herpes, right? A hundred percent. Yes. Yes. So he, yeah. The conversation should have been had, and it didn't. It didn't happen. So, mm -hmm. what conversation happened after you know he assumed that you knew? What was the conversation after you had your diagnosis and you were like, "Hey, this is herpes. You gave it to me." <laughs> yeah. Then, uh, so we ended up in a relationship for like almost two years. <laughs> so wait, let's talk about that. Okay. So was this a pity relationship? Was this a oh well now I have herpes? I'm just going to date this person or was it something else? Yeah. Uh, great questions. Um, so, I mean, it was a few things like it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the first time that we had met. We had been flirting for a while, so there was definitely interest there. I mean, the interest, I think on both of our ends and to be honest, I've never like asked or explored this, um, retroactively. So, I don't quite know if like maybe there was more interest, but at least for myself, you know, the interest was really just really cute guy I had fun flirting with and just kind of figured it would be fun to, you know, play around. And, and then that led to a lifetime diagnosis. And I was like, you're mine forever. <laughs> I'm, if I'm stuck with this, you're stuck with me. And, you know, I was 20, I was, I mean, it, at the time it felt so young. Um, and I didn't know anyone. I'd never heard anyone talk about it. I didn't know anyone with it, um, that I was aware of. And I was terrified. I thought it was a death sentence. Um, I thought no one would want to be with me. And so we just kind of... I mean, I'm 38 now, so that like, almost half my life ago, I don't quite remember uh, how the conversation went, but, you know, I know that it, we ended up in a relationship. I, I, I think, like, he was kind of interested. Um, I don't really remember thinking that I wanted a relationship with him beforehand. Um, so that was definitely the thing that... <laughs> solidified it. I was like, mm, I think we have to be together now because yeah. So that wasn't a stop talking. That was just a, when you were knocking on the table.
Oh, <laughs> you just stopped talking to bro. <laughs> I thought you were like, cut it. No, no, no. Please shut up. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, so this was a two-year relationship. Were there? Did you force compatibility? Were y'all compatible at all? Yeah. So I, I we ended up. Gosh, I think it. Yeah, it was. It was actually almost two years exactly. Um, we ended up being very, like, we, we had a great relationship. Honestly, there were a lot of, um, a, a lot of, I'll say personal issues that he was battling with, uh, a lot of suicidal ideations, um, alcoholism, but we actually got along really well. Um, it was just, it, it was a lot. Um, and so we, there, there was a lot of infidelity. So I guess I say all that to say like, <laughs> like, oh, we got along great. And then he cheated a lot as well. So there were just like, you said I mean, there was a lot of infidelity and then you said he cheated a lot as well as in also. Sorry. Yeah. Um, maybe I should. I didn't probably say that clearly. So we got along very well, like in our relationship, mm-hmm. um, which I think is probably sounds funny after me realizing like, oh yeah, that's right. He, he did cheat quite a bit um, in the beginning. I think in the beginning, because it was probably, and again, like I haven't, I don't know, I haven't gone back as an adult and, you know, tried to have those conversations. So I don't know. At the time, um, I think it was more of a, I didn't know how to have those conversations, but it, it may have been just verbally processing right in this moment. Um, it may have been just because like we were kind of forced into a relationship and, you know, I don't know if he was looking for that in the end, it's what he wanted. But ironically, in the end, I like I couldn't deal with it. And so he technically ended things, but I couldn't deal with the alcoholism. I couldn't, the infidelity had stopped, but there was just so many things that while we were doing fine, it was just continually taxing and just very, very hard. Um, mostly dealing with alcoholism, but um, like I said, there were a lot of, not even ideations, a lot of suicidal attempts. So it was just something that he needed to be on his own and get a lot of help. What does supporting a partner who is struggling with suicide attempts, ideation, and alcoholism look like? Because two years of a relationship, it's not like it wasn't already prevalent before you got there. Uh, It's been there for a while. So going into that relationship and having that as your baseline of, oh, this is what this person comes with. How did you navigate that? Okay, let me make sure I'm clear. You're asking, how did I navigate that? Or how should someone support that? Oh, how did you navigate supporting (laughs) your partner who was struggling with alcoholism, suicide attempts, and ideation? Okay. I was like... It sounds very emotionally draining. Yeah. I was about to say, if it's how to support, I was like, I am not, <laughs> I should not give that <laughs> oh, advice. No, no, no. This is just your experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I, you know, I can't say that I handled it well. I was, I was young. I was, um, I, I, yeah, I just didn't handle it well. I was still immature myself. Um, he was eight years older. So I think, you know, I had a lot of expectations of him. I guess being, um, mature. Well, I want to say mature, but I'm trying to think if that's really the word I'm looking for because I, I don't want to make it sound like those things are immature. The, I think he was really, truly struggling. I don't think it was, it's that it was a maturity issue. Mm -hmm. It was he had... Mature from an emotional perspective, maybe? Yes. Like to be able to manage or uh, have any sort of self-soothing mechanisms to cope with those things or seek help or have it managed so to speak yeah there was definitely I, I think maturity that I I think should have been there but the real issues I don't think were an issue of like maturity or immaturity I think the real issues were the alcoholism, um, I think that that was probably the biggest thing. There was also a lot of drug use. So there were just like a lot of... We're talking about smoking weed or are we talking about drugs? Coke. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. On a, I mean, like daily, daily use. Um, so I just think that there was a lot at play that at the end of the day, it was just, it, it wasn't something I should have been navigating. It was just something that he needed help and we should not have been in a relationship but I you know at that stage in my life feeling like my diagnosis was a death sentence not knowing anyone at the time I you know I, I really just thought that being in a relationship with him was the only option so I, and I, and I did love him, so I don't want to make it sound like it was out of, uh, obligation. Um, but, you know, looking back on it, right, hindsight's twenty twenty. I should have absolutely not been in a relationship with him. It should have been a, I unfortunately, even though I, you know, I, I say that with a grain of salt, like, I now have this STD, I should have just kept it moving and not entered into a relationship with this person. And much more importantly, not like at the time thinking I need to be with this person forever because I have this um, diagnosis. I, I definitely shouldn't have gone down the path of like trying to create a life with someone who was in a very unhealthy place at the time what this speaks to is how much of an emphasis we put onto our diagnosis our sexuality compared to things that are probably more important mm -hmm. so i often say this and anyone who's been listening for a while hears me say that our identities are very interconnected with our sexuality to the point where an STI diagnosis comes in and it just shatters who we are or what we thought our life was supposed to be like. And there's this grieving process that takes place. It has to take place. We're grieving our sexual selves. You mentioned having the thoughts of 
no one's going to be with me. I'm never going to be in a relationship. I better take what I can get. Mm -hmm. And that's what led you into this relationship with a person who did not embody the values of someone that you would want to be in a relationship with. We talked about the, um, the alcoholism specifically, not to say that, you know, addiction isn't something that you can still love someone if they have it, or if we're looking at suicide ideation or any other mental health, um, concerns. I don't like to call them problems. Mm -hmm. Um, these are all things that can be prevalent in a relationship, but the focus, the weight of your herpes diagnosis carried so much more value than the significance of the alcoholism, the mental health concerns yeah. and the behaviors, the cheating and yeah. everything. It was like, Oh, I have herpes. I guess I got to be with this person, even though there's all this stuff going on. And this is someone I wouldn't normally be with. Yeah. And that ended up following me after that relationship ended into the next relationship. So <clears throat> I'll just let you talk. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Did you already know? Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I kind of know because we had the conversation. Yeah. I remember just sitting there being quiet and letting you talk. But like, it was so long ago, bits and pieces are going to jump yeah. up at me. Like this story, I don't think we really talked much about this relationship. Yeah, we I didn't think... go into the first one as much as we went into okay. the, the, the following. Um, yeah, so after things ended with him, um, I met the man that ended up, that I ended up marrying um, about... It does not mean you got to kiss a few frogs before you get your, your prince. Like, <laughs> don't nobody take that. Oh, well, you can go through yeah. this relationship. Just, just if wait. If I make it through this one, then I'll be <laughs> Prince Charming. No, that's not, that's not where this is going. Prepare <laughs> well, yourself. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. I say, I say the man I married and then also we ended up divorcing. So, uh, <laughs> the ex-husband, I guess. There you go. Um, yeah. The, yeah. There, there's a lot. Um... So I met him about, I think it was two months uh, after the relationship ended. And um, I wasn't looking to be in a relationship. I was definitely in my, you know, I need to be single phase. And I just got out of a relationship. I'm not looking for anything serious. I was, I think, 22 at the time. Roughly, it was like right. I think it was right before I turned twenty three, and um, my my dog in the background. <laughs> no, he's not a fan. <laughs> um, so, is he I, barking at a ghost? He's just looking over there and bark. Oh, <laughs> maybe. He's like, I don't like this story. Yeah. <laughs> All right. He, he knows. Um, <laughs> I did stop rubbing my foot on him. He's, he's just chilling. So, he's, <laughs> um, so it was about two months later. Um, I met my ex. I actually feel like I'll, I'll, I'll actually go into the whole story. I can't remember if I went into this part of it with you. So I met him. At a strip club. Um, I didn't notice. I was just about to say, I was like, I actually don't know if... Wait, was he working there? Were you working there? I actually don't know. Oh, you don't know this about me, then. I don't know All right. any of this. <laughs> so, all right, we're doing this. All right. So, yes, we both used to work there separately. I was a cocktail waitress at the time. 
he was a bartender. <laughs> I feel like for, for history, for anyone listening, There's like we've known each bartenders. other for a few years. So you said what? There's a history here of bartenders. Uh, well, yeah, I, he, you know, he was there shooting pool. Like, so he wasn't, he didn't work there anymore. And I didn't work there anymore. So we both just happened to be there. Um, it was a block from, I was waitressing at the time. Um, and it was a block down the street from where I was working. So I just used to go there and, you know, I'd go there after work to drink and, um, met him and long story short, he, so one of the things I, I'll kind of jump to present day real quick and then jump back. So one of the things I'm most proud of, and, and I don't say this lightly because I know this is not easy, but one of the things I'm very proud of with having my diagnosis is that I've never, except for once, and he's the once, I have never not disclosed before being with someone because I just was like, I, I didn't want to do to someone else what was done to me. I didn't want to take that choice away from anyone and I say all that to say but the first time <laughs> I was in that situation I didn't and so that was the night that I met my ex-husband so he it's gonna sound really ridiculous back to back <laughs> like <laughs> it's gonna I'm gonna get a reputation but um I met him and wasn't interested in very long story, but my friend brought him back and we ended up having what I thought would be like one night stand and I didn't say anything to him. He also didn't tell me that at the time he was married. So there were just secrets on both ends. Um, and so we ended up both disclosing our secrets um, after we had slept together. And so I say all that to say he was the first person I'd been with after this, you know, the relationship being with a guy who had given it to me. And I was so grateful. And this is what you and I talked about last time. I was, and it was like this epiphany I had after my divorce of how herpes was linked to me staying in this abusive relationship because I was so grateful. I, I think I want to say in like in the herpes community, they call it like a muggle, I think. Where Harry, like, yeah, they use the Harry Potter language. Yeah, yeah, where it's like the... You didn't get the glitter, the power. You don't have the magic. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I didn't know any of that at the time because I didn't have, there was no community that I had. Um, but I was just so grateful Um at that time to, you know, that there was someone who wanted to be with me despite my diagnosis is how I thought of it at the time that, and, and in the very beginning, as like most abusive relationships are, it was great, right? It was absolutely amazing. Um, and so I was just, I was so grateful that someone wanted to be with me because I hadn't talked to anyone about it. I didn't think. You didn't think what? I didn't, I didn't think that anyone would want to be with me. Um, 
And so I ended up, you know, it just without getting into all the details, I mean, it just ended up being very abusive physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and so that, I won't say it was the only factor, but my diagnosis was a huge factor in why I stayed in it because I just, I really thought no one's going to want me. And I realized after my divorce, when I got into therapy and I really started digging into why did I stay in this? I, you know, I had an amazing upbringing and I was so loved and my father was there, you know, all, all of these stereotypes of how, I think about those things. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did I end up in strip clubs? How did I end up in an abusive relationship? You know, like it was this weird thing of like, I had this truly, truly incredible childhood where I was so loved. My dad is, you know, my hero and told me he loved me a jazillion times a day, you know, every day for like my whole life. And that, I mean, that was so much of why I ended up staying in this relationship because. It sounds like you learned like loyalty and commitment and relationship and effort and all of these things. It was just applied to the wrong people. Well, it's funny that you say that. I can't remember if we talked about this the first time we recorded, <laughs> but I do think that that actually, like everything you just touched on, is a lot of. Um, I thought it was corny. <laughs> um, Corny's the dog. The dog, yes. <laughs> I thought it was my dog. Um, a lot of that is stuff that I think I learned in the church. So my dad being a pastor, my dad being a pastor, like my entire life, you know, I heard about what a good marriage looks like and the commitment and the loyalty and the like, you stay in it and you don't get divorced and you don't leave. And no matter what, like you work through it and the funny thing is they always said, of course, in a, in a very uber religious, conservative Christian home, it was all of that was within the confines of marriage, right? Like all of this happens within the confines of marriage. And so I, I had all of that ingrained in me through the religious upbringing. And then when I, against my family's <laughs> desires had sex outside of marriage I still took all of everything I was ingrained with and just applied that to my relationship so I took the loyalty I took the perseverance I took the like <laughs> my favorite Malcolm X quote like by any means necessary you know it's like I'm gonna work through this no matter what I'm in this forever even though I wasn't married to him at the time and I was going to work through it. So it was it was an interesting <laughs> marriage, if you will, um, to, to use that word, of the like conservative Christian upbringing I had. And then the fear of, which, hmm, I've actually never thought about this until now. Ooh, processing moment. Oh, yeah. So... I was going to say the fear of, and I just realized like, I probably, I got this fear from the church. I never thought about this purity culture. So were you raised in like, did you ever 
Uh, Baptist. I would go to church and a Baptist church. Are you familiar with purity culture at all? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, did you ever see or hear about the whole, like, you would go to youth conferences and talking about saving yourself for marriage and they'd pass around a rose, right? I'm looking at this beautiful bouquet of roses. This is my boyfriend got, actually, not even me, <laughs> got my mom for her birthday. Um, and, you know, they would pass around a rose. And in the very beginning, it's like, oh, this rose is so beautiful. Look, it's so, so beautiful. And everyone pass it around, smell it, touch it, feel how soft it is, smell how beautiful it is, pass it around, just keep passing it. And then, you know, the whole thing is you pass it around and after you pass it around a lot, it's been passed around, right? Now all of a sudden it's like falling apart. You can't smell it. It's like, you know, it's just breaking apart in your hands. Not pretty anymore. And that was the message, right? Which is nobody wants you. You've been used, you know, you're no longer beautiful. You're no longer wanted. Like, you know, someone will only want you truly when you're untouched, when you're unblemished, when you're perfect, when you've been nobody else's but theirs. And so funny enough, I did have that mentality, which I'm just now, I think, putting two and two together. That was probably a bit of it too. Um, was just thinking like, <clears throat> was just thinking that, you know, no one else, no one else will want me even, you know, with, even though I, I didn't think that, but I did, you know, it's one of those, it was just so ingrained in me from my childhood, um, that, yeah, I've never made that connection before, but I do think that that was probably a big part of it too, so. Wow. I don't uh, know if I fully brought that full circle, but. Uh, I think so, because <laughs> you speak to how religion influenced your ideals of what made for a perfect marriage relationship and every all of those values were instilled in you mm -hmm. and then when we speak about you know the purity piece you know someone wants you so your identity being attached to being one it was your identity attached to being as pure as you could be mm -hmm. uh using the passed around analogy you know you're still at as at, you're as purest as possible mm -hmm. and you given your herpes diagnosis may have felt metaphorically passed around and for someone to want you, it made you feel even more wanted because you're what you've learned to be broken, damaged, uh, and whatever the other words were that you use, um, kind of like the rose yeah. or the flower, right? Yeah. So I think that that's really what the connecting piece is. No, you nailed it. That's Yeah, it's, it's definitely the not being wanted, it's being used, it's being dirty, right? Like that's a lot of the language in evangelical culture is you're damaged, you're dirty, nobody wants you. And I didn't feel that way with losing my virginity. Like I didn't feel that way that like, oh, nobody's going to want me because I've been with someone, but I definitely felt that way when I got my diagnosis. Yeah. And I think in, in all fairness, I mean, I think part of that just is cultural, right? That's why we're having this conversation because there's such a stigma around it. So I don't want to put it all 
on the church. I think it was probably worse for me growing up in an in an, in an environment that was <laughs> that was like all purity culture where there was no talks about sex outside of marriage. There was no talks about um prevention or you know any protection nothing um it was just you wait for marriage so and even then it's like you wait till marriage but what if your partner has something right because realistically in the perfect world everybody would wait till marriage according to this way of living right but that's not the case so it's implied okay you remain pure and the messaging is never really directed at the men. It's only directed at the women. You know, the messaging to the men is what? Like, has that been your experience in church? Because you made a face. So yeah, is everybody, <laughs> is it everybody went to marriage? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, at least I, I always thought that it was equal in terms of waiting for marriage what was not equal was the weight put on women to control the lust of men. You know, it was, and that's a whole different topic, but <laughs> like it was definitely, I felt like equally um, put on both, or I'll say all genders to remain pure and chaste for marriage. Um, Chaste, C-H-A-S-T-E? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so remaining a virgin until you're married. Um, but it was not equally put on men to, like... It, it was all, all the weight, I felt like, was put on women to, you know, dress appropriately so you don't... Tempt a man. Tempt men, uh, yeah. Awaken their lust because they cannot control it. And the so, language. therefore, it is on you as a woman to control the lust of a man with how you dress and how you act. So, that was the, I felt completely disproportionate um, <laughs> onus that was put on women. But as far as like virginity, chastity, purity, I did feel like that was equal in terms of like everyone just be a virgin when you get married then since we're here on that topic yeah that wording while it can it, it can be interpreted as disempowering to women and down talking to women there seems to be like more power there than anything else because if you have the power to control a man's lust like that's something, I guess it depends on the tone of who it's coming from, but I think I see how many different ways that can be received as, oh, it's just my response. Now it's my responsibility to make sure a man doesn't want me because now we get into a point of rape culture and rape being the fault of the woman for not controlling the man's lust by wearing more clothes or not being uh, someone who tempts or awakens his lust, right? Mm -hmm. And then on the other end of that, there's, oh, I, I can make men do what I want. I can choose any man I want because I have control of this power that I possess. Dude, does what I'm saying make sense is how 
on two ends of the spectrum that power can be seen as oppressive versus empowering? It, it makes sense for sure. And I mean, I think... But that ain't what it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you can see both of those sides, but I think you only see the... Um, and I don't even know that I would say that it's empowering. I mean, I just personally feel that any... How do I want to say this? I, I just feel that anytime there's like one, I'll say side, um, and, and I say that very like generally speaking. So in this instance, we're talking about like gender roles, um, but I'm making it much more broad. I think anytime you see like one side has to rise up and put another the other side down for them to like, I just have a complete problem with that because that's not equality to me. Like, so, and that, that's like completely going into a different direction than, than you probably wanted to go. But, um, I think that at least to go back to kind of part of your original question in the church, it always felt very, disempowering as a woman that the onus is on you and it's your fault it was never like oh you're like you're so powerful it was like it's your fault that was always a language is that there was blame associated with it there was guilt there was shame um and i guess to your other kind of question that you're getting at i think on the other spectrum outside of the church i think you see the um I'm looking for like hmm. it's gonna hit you tomorrow I know yeah <laughs> um I can't think of it so I won't well, take time but like yeah, you see the you see it swing to the opposite end pendulum. of the spectrum yeah oh, where it's well no that too okay. I mean same same concept where it's like on the other hand then it's you know, women, then you have this like power, but then you're putting men down. So like, I have a problem with both sides. Like to me. Yeah. You don't have to empower yourself by like disempowering uh, and putting someone else down. Like I, so I have a problem with both. I'm glad you said that. I have, I have a brief story when uh, you're finished. Oh, go ahead. No, no. So, um, I've seen in this space of sex positivity that, there is a lot of men are trash, men ain't shit conversation happening. Um, and I decided to disengage from it. You know, mm -hmm. if I see it, if I see someone That's right. I saw your post. talking. Yep. Yeah, so it yep. was that post. Yep. So there was a comment on there from someone I actually unfollowed because of that reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I guess she hadn't noticed it. She probably thinks I unfollowed her after a comment, if she thought anything of it at all. But she was like... Uh, she said something and it made me say, well, you know, we're looking for our power in places where power exists and we're putting our, we're losing our power in saying you need less power because you have so much of it. Give some away and not realizing that our power is misplaced. And what I mean by that is it's misplaced in where we're putting our focus. We're focused on who has power 
and how they shouldn't have power, but we're not even able to see where we have it mm -hmm. and be able to focus it, right? Yeah. So if we're on social media complaining about uh, this person has all this stuff and they need to give some up, like we're completely neglecting where we have our opportunities to have power, you know, for somebody else to be able to show up and say, you have too much power, give some up, right? But that's not how it should be. Mm -hmm. We can empower others. We can empower ourselves without disempowering or talking down or tearing down anyone else. It's just a matter of, okay, well, you've got power, you've got influence, you've got whatever it is that stems from your power, I can acknowledge that, be aware of it, and then go on about my business and let that be something that inspires me to tap into my own. Yeah. So it's very easy to have misplaced power, and that's one way that it can be misplaced, is my attention and focus are on places where I don't have power rather than being in places where I do. Yeah. Does that does that speak to the what you were getting at with the... Uh, having power, taking power back without disempowering others. Yes. Um, you ain't got to say yes to agree with me. You can be like, no, not quite. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would tell you. Okay. Um, no, no, no. No, it, it, it does. I was just trying to think of like, I was more so thinking back to like my original thought on it and just trying to oh, think yeah, back the to like the... About original point of it but yes like kind of where we ended up going a hundred percent i i definitely agree and i i have well and where we started at with that was women being responsible for controlling men's lust in the religion uh context yeah Oh, I thought you were asking where we started. I'm looking at you like, no. oh, I thought, you, I was like, I thought that was, was there more. Needed. Was there more? No, I no, can no. keep talking. I just, I want to make sure that if you have something else to say there, that we can, we can do that and then move on. No, I mean, I think that's, that's I have a lot to say on that, but I think that's like a, that's a very complex, that, that's like, I wouldn't even say it's a whole podcast. That's its own Season. Oh, you drunk. You yes. had two of these martinis. No, that's, a, that's a whole... the conversation going. That's a whole season. <laughs> uh, we could do a whole season yeah. on that of it, podcast. It, so. it is. It, it is a much bigger conversation. So while we're here on the topic of power and, you know, what you learned in religion throughout your experience, we don't have to tell the story of your marriage and everything, but I guess after... Or you had to have feel, felt disempowered, or you have to have felt taken from, energetically drained. Um, Just in general in my marriage? Yeah, I mean, well, throughout these relationships that you've had, where you talked about being so committed and being committed and all in, so to speak, to the relationships that you had for them not to work out, I guess. What does recovery look like? How do you go from giving your all to something that just doesn't work out and then have the faith to go into something else and giving your all to that again? Uh, therapy and community. <laughs> I feel like While we're on the topic of therapy, Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides donation-based mental health support resources, including 
therapy. I just had to do that plug. That I, was too that, perfect. That was, you, was, look, you set me up said, for that one. And Spike. <laughs> um, no, that was perfect. Um, yeah, honestly, it was, it was therapy, a lot of counseling and community. Like, I always look back on that and say I would have never, I, I would not be, I think, sane and alive Can and happy. Something? Yeah. So coming from church background, dad's a pastor. Mm -hmm. I noticed you didn't say anything about God or faith in that portion. You said Ooh, therapy, okay. yep. community. Yeah. What was, I don't remember the third thing, but God wasn't included. Well, in I changed up and said counseling okay. and community the second time around. Yeah, no, I, that's a, Great question. So, um, so the very short of it, as I guess we've skipped to and everyone can allude to, is like abusive marriage. I was like with him for almost a decade. We were only married for four. Um, and so when we got divorced, I ended up actually moving down to Florida. I didn't know anyone there. Very long story, but I just, I just moved down there and, um, There was someone from my, like a Bible, so I went to two different Bible colleges and one of my friends from Bible college knew a pastor uh, down where I was moving in Florida and connected me. And so that community, so like when I say community, that includes my, that church community. Um, but like my faith was... <laughs> It, it played a lot in all that. I mean, there was a lot of like, fuck you, Jesus. Like, where were you? Who are you? What, like, what? And there was a lot of like holding on to that faith and needing that to be real. Because you were taught to yep. hold on, be loyal. Yep. So, and you know, and, and that being said, my my faith but also like just my upbringing in church was a lot of also why I stayed in my marriage um despite the abuse was like just everything I you know you hear about not getting divorced and working through things and even when there was very clear reasons that I could leave it was still something that I had been like primed my whole life to like you work through this and you're main loyal and you're steadfast and you're in this forever right like I only got married to do it once and <laughs> you know so my faith took like a, a really big hit um during my marriage separation and divorce and then the healing and the aftermath um but then it also became the most beautiful thing and it became this really like probably the most real thing where to me it is it's it's like the most true real thing I have but it was a lot of walking away a lot of fuck yous a lot of questions a lot of tears a lot of like hanging on to this is my only hope is for this to be real. Um, so my faith was like, when I say community, that is a lot, not 
not the entirety of the community. I mean, a lot of that was also just like friends, family. Um, I, there was like a gym that I was going to down there and those people were I, like, I don't know where I'd be without them either. So, I mean, there, there was a lot. Um, but my faith is such a big part of what I'm including in the community. So community, can we just to put this into perspective for someone who may be straddling a line of religion, spirituality, who may be questioning things like what I hear is that there was some resentment toward your faith. And then you were able to take that faith that you still had, you know, because you hold on to it and you put that into something that was more reciprocal community. You got from community what you hoped for from Jesus when you were in your marriage. Um, not, no, I, not quite that. I mean, I would say that I, I, I think, and I've heard this a lot from other people who have grown up in really hardcore religion and then walk away and question things. It's the, I was questioning what I was told. I was questioning who I was told God was and what I was told God was like and how that being operated and what that being cared about and you know things like that so it was really just me and at the time I definitely thought of it as like oh, I'm questioning God and now I'm like no just questioning the church and all that stuff and honestly now the the thing that I probably get the most like the the most uh the the most like It's, it's okay, good. baby. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, I, I think the thing now that I get like some of the most um, peace from, I don't know, peace is not really the right word, but I can put the most weight in is, are my questions, is the, I don't know, and that's okay. Like, I don't have to have answers. It, it's, it's not for me to know like if and I don't even know where I stand anymore with a personal relationship and all that and I'm okay with that you know there's a lot of stuff that when you know currently when I pray or whatever it's like I, I really go back and forth between I don't know what I think about this anymore and this is kind of what I was told and I'm still working through a lot of that and that's okay. Like my happiest place is being in the, I don't know. And, and that's okay. Cause religion tells you, you have to know religion tells you like we have the truth and we know the truth and we're telling you the truth and you have to buy into what we've told you and don't question it. And so I've, I've gotten a lot of freedom in the questions and in the unknown. So that is very beautifully said, that you got a lot of freedom in the questions and the unknown.
because people like to control everything. We want to know everything. I'm, I speak for myself. <laughs> but there is sometimes freedom in not knowing. You know, myself, uh, for example, just with how things have gone over the last six years of running something positive for positive people and how my herpes diagnosis almost 10 years ago ended up being a thing that I didn't know how it was going to turn out for me, mm -hmm. having evolved into a podcast, a nonprofit, arguably a social, um, com a social communications resource for people navigating sexual health conversations, uh, speaking to the status quo of sexual health care. You know, there are so many things that have come from the unknown and so much good, so much positive that has come from just me really leaning into the unknown and putting my faith into the fact that everything will just work out the way that it's supposed to. And yeah. I find freedom in that, like in just being able to let go and coming from someone who's held on so viciously mm -hmm. to things that perhaps they should have let go of, like that maybe was your lesson. Maybe your lesson was to let go. Because I believe anything that we do in extremes, the antidote to that is an extreme. Mm -hmm. So if your extreme initially is clinch, hold on, grasp, commit, don't let go, and then you finally let go, like the... Mm -hmm. That comes with that yeah. is just phenomenal. And the amount of peace, the amount of freedom, as you said, mm -hmm. that comes with that is just invigorating. And I think that this speaks to what I was asking about earlier, you know, the fatigue of putting so much into something, into someone who is not reciprocating, who may be dragging you down or that you may walk away from feeling like I failed to be able to go back into something new and unknown that could yeah. create that same kind of chaos for you. That's faith. That's freedom. That's liberating Yeah. to be able to lean into that space and find peace and um, your freedom of the unknown. Yeah. It's funny because hearing you say that and then thinking about just like going back to the the herpes story right and and kind of how that progressed I forgot we even talked about her no I know <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's funny because after my divorce then it was like then I really had to deal with that right now now I have to start deciding what that looks like, how those conversations go. Um, and I knew that I was going to tell people. Um, and I, I mean, I don't really know. I, I think it was honestly, it's funny what you just were saying about like going from one extreme to another. It's like when you have one extreme control you, then you swing to the opposite end of the pendulum. And it was like in my marriage, I was so controlled on like, you can't say anything. And so when I came out of that, I was like, I'm saying everything. I'm talking about everything. And one of the things that I talked about, and, and honestly, I don't really know where I got the audacity 
But I mean, I just started talking very publicly about having herpes. Um, and you know, throughout the years, because there was about a decade from just over a decade from when I got it, you know, in, in the first and in the initial relationship to when I then, you know, ended that met my ex-husband, was with him, divorced, so just over a decade. So during that time, I had grown very comfortable um, talking to close friends and family about that, but that was about it. Um, after the divorce, I just started, I don't really know why other, I mean, all I can think of is it was probably just feeling like I couldn't I wasn't allowed to say anything in my marriage because I just, I was telling people literally at Trader Joe's, I posted on Facebook. That's yeah, that's, that, <laughs> that is my, that's my sanctuary. You know, I, I like, I really just told everyone, like, I just did not give a fuck. And we did so good. Not cussing at all through this podcast. Now I got to check the explicit box. I have said fuck two other times before this. Really? Yes. Well, now we got four. Yeah. <laughs> Uh oh, um, oh you good? You good? We got we good. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I was telling everyone, and I posted. I, I just got to this point where I was like, I'm not gonna be suppressed. <laughs> like, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say my truth. And I remember I wrote this entire Facebook post, and I posted it on Facebook, and you know, and so that got a lot of traction, a lot of comments, a lot of. Um, I shouldn't say a lot of comments. I got a lot of private DMs and that was fascinating to me because I had, you know, uh, what I did realize is like, I didn't, I didn't have any problem over the years sharing with people that I trusted. So like all of my family and close friends knew and what was fascinating to me and what I learned slowly over the years is that. I started hearing me too a lot. A lot of people when I would share my diagnosis would be like, me too. And it was always in response to me sharing. I'd never, ever, you were literally the first person I've ever met and still to this day who like said it first. I've never met any, I've always been the first person to talk about it in any situation. And, uh, I don't know. I, I think that was something that just really started getting to me and I started noticing like there was no voice. And so after my divorce, I started realizing like I wanted to say something and it was really starting to bother me, the stigma. I'd worked in, you know, restaurants for a lot and that was a big thing. You know, there's always the jokes about like, uh, you know, people would do whatever and they'd be like, oh, you're going to get the herp. And, you know, so I started pushing back and saying something <laughs> privately, but still, you know, I, I started pushing back. And so it kind of started becoming more and more important to me to, to create that space for the conversation and to make sure that voices were being heard. Um, so that was like an interesting outcome, like in the processing of my marriage and divorce. So, so speaking up was something that you felt compelled to do and you found that it was something that worked out positively for you. 
Yeah. And I mean, I was honestly, again, to go back to a community, it was a lot of, <laughs> it, it, it was a lot of that support. Um, so, yeah. I feel like you needed to wrap that thought up. You can wrap that thought up. You just, you just got, you got 60 seconds. I'm looking at the time. I um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I guess I'm just trying to think of like parting words, you know, last, you last minute. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I guess, you know, I just, if there's anything that I would want to leave anyone with, it was, you know, like I said in the very beginning, I thought it was a death sentence. And the thing that I realized, the more and more I started, like, not giving a fuck what anyone thought and started just, like, talking more and more about it, is that, like, like almost nobody cared. Like, I, I was so shocked at how little anyone cared. And most everyone had so much empathy or sympathy for the situation. And so I think that that, if there's anything I can leave people with, it's, it's just that it's, you know, I used to think it was this death sentence and now it's just, I mean, I, I could talk to a stranger on the streets. I just don't care. And it's been incredible to see how that's turned out. Yeah. I mean, that's the power of community. And I hope that people are able to find that through here, something positive for positive people and the shared resources that we have, our networks and everything that we have in these podcast episodes, the guests and all. Thank you so much, Lauren. I appreciate having you here. Thank you for having me again. And thanks for <laughs> listening, everyone. Till next time, stay sex pop.